Hello and welcome. You're listening to This Is Some Scene. I am James Ippoliti, and I am also the host of the Real Demons of Pop Culture podcast and many more podcasts soon to come. This Is Some Scene was a podcast I produced back in the mid-2000s to about 2009. Season one of This Is Some Scene is going to be those lost interviews. Interviews with people like Tommy Wiseau, Joe Dante, Amber Benson, Crispin Glover, so many more at the dawn of podcasting. I had a group of people that had a lot of fun doing these podcasts. Now, the quality is not as great as it could be because it was at the beginning of podcasting where it was very hard. It also was recorded live. Most of the calls were live, as you will see. And so the quality is not to the standards of 2023, but they are pretty good for 2008, 2009, etc. You may hear the voices of Andrea. You may hear the voices of Eric Feasterville, also known as Chris Blake Sasser. So grab your favorite beverage, sit back, and enjoy these interviews from the beginning of the podcasting universe. In season two, we will be introducing new interviews to continue the legacy of This Is Some Scene. 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 (laughs) Thank you so much for taking the time out of your day and uh, giving this chance to interview you. Um, Let me start with what age did you start writing? I started writing about, writing stories about 12. I started thinking about being a professional about 16. What were those stories about? Were they comedy? Were they horror? Um, you know, strangely enough, I, I had to circle around to this. They were horror stories that had sort of an ironic uh, edge to them. So they're probably precursors to what I do now, which is sort of funny horror stories. Did you start out writing horror and just say, fuck it, I, uh, I can't not be funny? Well, in a way, what happened was I had I had not written for a few years, and I went to a writers' conference in Santa Barbara, and I and I took a number of horror stories I'd written, and I read them in a workshop, and everybody was laughing at them, and this is where I heard <laughs> praised, and I went, well, I guess that's what I do, you know. So I sort of rolled with it, and and found out that it really was something that I was able to do that was different from what other people were doing. So. You know, any anything that gives you a leg up, kind of. So since I, it kind of came natural to me, that's what I ended up doing. Now, at that time, at age 16, you wanted, who were the authors you were reading at that time? Um, I was reading Richard Matheson, um, uh, who wrote, you know, Incredible Shrinking Man and I Am Williams right. and, and about mm-hmm. half the Twilight Zones. Robert Block, who wrote Psycho and a lot of really dark, sort of funny horror stories, uh, um, H.P. Lovecraft, who you know teaches you that you really don't need that many adjectives, um, but but I was reading a lot of short story horror writers, Ray Bradbury certainly. Uh, um, a lot of them don't come to mind right now, but but that was the genre I was reading a lot in and and trying to work uh, sort of get my chops down writing short stories. Now it's interesting you know, you bring up something like Psycho, which is you know one of my favorites. I'm a big Hitchcock fan, uh, and I know that book you know. When Hitchcock does it, a lot of films, horror films, I think the ones done well have comedy in them. You know, it's they sort of go hand in hand horror and comedy, and I think the best horror has that. I mean, you can well, like, I, I think so too. I think you need that relief. I mean, if it's really scary, you really need something to sort of giggle at that that uh, whistling in the graveyard thing, where um, you need that comic relief to break the tension a little bit. If it's if the tension, I, I mean, because essentially we're talking about a dramatic experience. We're not talking about real, tangible, you know, someone's going to rip your guts out horror. We're talking about, you know, something you're experiencing as entertainment. And if it's relentless, it's not fun, you know. Right. You can't breathe between it, you know. And essentially, you're you're there to be entertained, and you don't mind being scared, but you don't want it to be so relentless that it's, it's uh, you know, it's exhausting. And, and uh, I think that, uh, I think that's why a good horror has 
beats in it, you know, that allows you some, you know, a few laughs or, or at least some relief, you know, the, the, oh my God, it's the monster and you turn and no, it's the cat, you know, that's some, some horror movies, that's the best they're going to get, <laughs> but they do give you a little bit of comic relief, you know. Right. Like Sam Raimi's great with like the Evil Dead trilogy or Absolutely. even the Dra- Dra- yeah. Drag Me to Hell, which just came out is, is, not only terrifying at moments, it's hilarious. It's, and it's great. Yeah, well, Raimi, Raimi's sort of the master. Evil Dead 2 is, is the iconic, uh, you know, that's sort of where you go if you go, this is, this is what a, a comic horror movie is supposed to be because it's really horrific and it's a horrible experience for the guy going through it. But, but it's really funny at times, too. Yes. Uh, I think I a lot of your books have that. Uh, Drag Me to Hell, you, I think if you love Evil Dead 2 and Army of Darkness, you're going to love Drag Me to Hell. It's great. He definitely yeah, uh, came, I, I, came back. Yeah, I was really glad to see that. I haven't, like I said, I haven't had a chance to get out to see it, but I'm looking for. I, you know, he's, you know, just terrific, and it's nice to see him. The Spider-Man films are fun, but it's really nice to see him back uh, doing what he's the master at. And uh, right, you know, my stuff I think has uh, over the years has sort of, um, I think it's gravitated to be more comic than it is horror. I mean, I certainly, I just finished, I just turned in a vampire book, um, and there's some scary parts to it, but, but, it, you know, I, I don't think people are, are reading my stuff because they're going to be scared. I think they're really no, right. funny, you know, and I, and I but, just, I've naturally gravitated in that direction. But uh, yeah, I love the supernatural element as well. I mean, that's, I think that's where the comedy comes in is just, you know, these, everyday characters facing these supernatural events. And so you just said you finished the vampire novel? I just did. I, in fact, I'm working on the, the last page of the edit today. Um, uh, Bite Me uh, Love Story is my third one, and it, it'll be out next is this, April. Is this a, like a trilogy now from the you know, Bloodsucking Fiends and You Suck? I guess I have committed a trilogy, yeah. This is uh, Bloodsucking Fiends, You Suck a Love Story, and, uh, and Bite Me a Love Story sort of wraps it up. So, yeah. Wow, that's fantastic. And so yeah, it was. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, that was. Uh, are you? Um, how did, has this been difficult to write this one, or did this one come easy for you? Um, you know, you would think that it would become. There are some aspects of it that are easy because you know the characters already, and and it's set in San Francisco, and I I know the city now better than I did when I wrote the other two books because I've lived here for a few years now, but um. Other aspects to try and make it seem fresh are are a little bit hard, and the fact that you have this two books of backstory, you know, I I didn't anticipate. I mean, I I don't want to get too nuts and bolts on it because nobody cares, but um, the the hardest part of writing these last two has, has always been uh, I have this 16 year old goth girl named Abby Normal who I write <laughs> in her voice, and and I don't naturally gravitate to the voice of a 16 year old girl. So, so it's really crafting every single sentence um, so that it's in her voice. But it, it's, um, it was difficult in that respect. But I had just come off of writing, rewriting King Lear from the point of view right. of school. So this was way easy compared to that. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's all relative. Now, actually on Facebook, uh, somebody had brought up the movie rights to Bloodsucking Fiends and You Suck, and you said that they just expired with Fox. Just now, yeah, a lot of a lot of deals in Hollywood are going. People are letting go of things that are in development, which uh, means you know they bought them, but they haven't really started them yet. And that was the case. Fox had both of my vampire uh, books, and they just literally a month or two ago let the uh, the options uh, lapse. And it, and it was just a matter of you know everybody's cutting their budget. Can we afford to keep paying, you know, rent on these projects that we're not moving forward with? So so we didn't really get much of a of a we didn't get any editorial why we're not doing this. I think it was just a matter of they hadn't gotten far enough with it that they wanted to continue. And, that blows uh, my mind because right now is vampires are the shit. You know, it's with Twilight and, you know, it, it was this way way back when Anne Rice was writing and everything right. was vampires. Then it turned into zombies for like 10 years. And, and then now vampires are huge. I don't know why they would drop something. I mean, this seems like a no-brainer to me. I, I think I don't think that uh, I don't think that's what it is. I, I, I mean I don't think it's a matter of trying to play trends because I think um, everybody that reads my stuff that is a Twilight fan or is exposed to it says that this is really a nice kind of antidote to it, which is is ironic in a way because when the first one came out they said this is a great antidote to the seriousness of Anne Rice, and, yes. um, because because the books are funny you know they're very funny and the and the vampires are sort of real people they're not all hyper dramatic and stuff. 
Um, and uh, so I don't think that's really the case. I, I mean, I get probably two or three letters a week from screenwriters saying, you know, have you ever thought about adapting Bloodsucking Fiends as a film? Because I wrote the book in three acts, which is how screenplays are written. And right. they read it, they go, oh, my God, this is a slam dunk for a for a uh, adaptation. So I don't think that it has to do with that. I think it has more to do with the calendar that they had going and that they hadn't, because of the writer's strike, they hadn't gotten a script that they thought it was um, – they wanted to move forward with. They hadn't gotten it done because they'd lost that time. So I, it, it's more about timing, I think, than the actual material. And, and I have no doubt someone else will will pick them up and, and go for it. Will they ever make them? I have no idea. I sold my first novel as a movie 20 years ago, and it's never been made. So Right. Now, Disney bought that, right? Yeah, Disney bought it in 1993. Yeah, 1990, 1990, you know, and it's been that long, and they've never, nothing's ever happened with it. Wow. Now, if you had a choice, and this is kind of interesting, having an author on, and you could cast the, you know, the leads in your blood-sucking fiends. Do you have anybody in mind? You know, the funny thing is, I wrote the first one in 1994, and um, I have the my main character is Jody. Uh, she's a 25-year-old right. uh, secretary redhead, and I thought Kira Sedgwick would be perfect. Well, in 1994, Kira Sedgwick was perfect, but now <laughs> I'd have to find a completely uh, a uh, new set of characters, and, and uh, I, I don't know, Isla Fisher would be fine for Jody. Um, I've liked, uh, oh, I'm trying to remember the girl's name. I can't remember her name now, but there's a, there's a really funny redheaded actress that uh, that would be a good Jody. That, um, so it, it's really funny how these things change to where you, you know, you originally think, oh, this will be the, great, the guy to play the, you know, the young teenage honest guy, and by the time they get around to actually optioning it, you go, oh, well, he could play the father. <laughs> Uh, yeah, <laughs> that's crazy so, how it works. Yeah, it really is. So I, I sort of—it's a game that I play with readers, you know. On as you said, I'm on Facebook and and Twitter and MySpace and stuff. And I go, who do you guys think should be in it? You know. So uh, it, at, at this point, I think maybe Isla Fisher would make a great Jody, and and uh, you know, my my Tommy, so sort of the hapless 19-year-old guy. Um, those guys are also getting aged out of, you know, I think, well, Justin Long would be great, but now, you know, Justin Long's in his late 20s. He's, he wouldn't fit the character anymore. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I'll have to I'll have to tune into some CW shows and see people that age and what they're doing. Well, I guess, like, I, uh, I don't know how, how different age. Uh, Allison Hannigan's the one who played Willow in Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Mm-hmm. Um, Mm-hmm. But she might be a little. Yeah, older. I, yeah. I mean, she's a grown. Yeah, it's. I. It's really something that I would love to. I think an actress who gets hold of it could really make, you know, have a field day with it. But uh, um, I, I suspect what'll happen is that as tends to happen, that, that it'll be who's available and who likes the, the idea of the part more than anything else. You know, they can dye people's hair and they'll. You know, yeah. The age people can play a pretty wide age. Uh, age range you know depending on on uh, you know what you're looking at you can get there's a lot of actors that can play anywhere from 25 to 40 you know like Leonardo Leonardo DiCaprio yeah incredible at, at 23 and he's credible at 40 so <laughs> yeah um you know and there's a lot of actors and actresses like that so I I, I really you can't invest yourself too much in it. it's a fun game but uh you know like I said they're probably all going to age out of the <laughs> out of the role, and then when it comes up, you know the the producer's going to go, well, we should get this person. You go, well, they're totally too old, and you go, yeah, but we can get them. You know, so, uh, <laughs> yeah, right. I just it, they're they're working on the uh, movie of the Stupidest Angel right now, and they just uh, cast a guy who's like 50 years old in the part of Tucker Case, who in the book is 30. Uh, and I'm like, okay, but but it's a pretty big name actor, so I can't, uh, you know, I was like, okay, do the best you can. Um, but it's now, going to be clearly a different. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Does that film look like it's going to, you know, be yeah, it's really or... close. It's closer than we've ever been. But it's an independent, um, an independent uh, film production, and um, a guy named uh, Carl Goldstein, and I forget. I think Swim Pictures is his, is his uh, company's name, and he's got a great cast put together. But they just, you know, they're literally 27 days from when they're supposed to start shooting, and I think they they need to. Uh, a couple of financiers uh, dropped out of line, so they need to line up some more financiers. So it's a, it's been interesting because we haven't gotten this close before, and there's been some terrific people on board. Uh, Mia Hohovich wants to play Molly, the, the who basically ends up the crazy vampire or, or wow. uh, zombie slayer in that, 
and um, and let me think of who else is in it. Uh, uh, William Fisker kind of plays the bad, evil developer guy, and uh, Dwight Yoakam plays Tucker Case, the crazy <laughs> helicopter pilot. You know, um, but it's a fun, it's a really fun cast for a horror movie. Uh, Crispin Glover plays sort of the mad biologist. Scientist. Oh, that we we had uh, Crispin Glover on here uh, not too about a year ago. We had him on the show. He's a yeah. fascinating individual. Yeah, I think it would be. I think it would be really fun. I hope it happens, but I, I, I just have learned over the years that nothing happens until it opens in two thousand theaters. You know, so but yes. these, these guys have gotten it closer than anybody else has before, and I was really pleased to hear that that Mia was going to play Molly because that's who she is. I mean, that character is a is a movie actor, sort of a B movie actress who's you know has been slaying mutants for you know her whole career, and then she sort of um, lives in a trailer in this little town and. And Mia has been slaying mutants her whole career, and and so she's yeah. perfect for it, you know. I'll tell you right now, I have to. I'll buy the ticket as soon as it comes out. I, I, yeah, I, I know, know myself. Every fan of your books is just dying for something for the big screen at this point, and I, I, I can't imagine what you would be like to see, you know, see someone's interpretation of your book. Well, I, I think I don't know what that noise this was. I don't um, know what it was. Um. You know, I I think that uh, it can be a good thing and it can be a bad thing. I mean, when we watch that little movie in our head when we're reading, I mean, I, I yeah. get t- ten letters a day about Lamb. Why isn't this a movie? Uh-huh. And I'm not sure that it would make that great a movie. I think it might be a little bit of a disappointment. I, and um, and, and cause how is it going to be a better movie than we run in our heads? Uh, you know, the horror right. comedy ones I think would be a lot of fun, especially if they're cast and directed right. But um, and I, I would imagine with Lamb, I mean, the cost itself, just to do a period piece, uh, you know, would be astronomical. Uh, so that's the the first thing. I love Lamb. That was my the first book I ever read by you, mm-hmm. and that blew me away. Just and that just threw me into the Christopher Moore world. But you know, the saying is, it's never as good as the book. I mean, almost everything. I can think of one book possibly that uh, the movie was better, and that's Jaws. You know. Uh, are there yeah, any movies well, that, think, you've seen that that you said, "Wow, I read the book with this"? Well, I would say the adaptations of Stephen King shorts, like uh, the Shawshank Redemption, great film, uh, much better, I thought, than the short story. Well, I think a short story lends itself to being expanded in a film, where right. a novel you're going to lose something. I, I liked the firm, the movie better than the book because okay. it's just because the character, the character in the book was kind of didn't he wasn't he didn't have really a redeeming social side he was kind of a dick lawyer who just happened to be in a firm held by the mafia whereas he sort of redeems himself and and you know makes up to his wife and he's not a complete jerk in the film and i and that may that always makes a difference to me is there is there somebody in in a movie or a book that i can root for um and i i just kind of didn't like the character in the book and i thought the t- character uh, that tom cruise played was a lot better but i think you're right in most cases w- the best you're going to do is it's different and it's okay and i'm fine with that i'm fine to say i don't care if it's the same as the book and it might be more fun because you can do different things in film i mean i my favorite book in the world is cannery row and i liked the movie but it doesn't have a whole lot to do with the book you know right um and uh, I, I think with Lamb, there's just too much book, and and it's been optioned for five or six years, or bought out actually five or six years now, and uh, and they haven't done anything with it yet. And I think what they run up against, I told them when they bought it, I said you should try and get it in a miniseries on HBO or something. Yeah, that would be fantastic. It's, yeah, it's just too much book for for a two-hour movie. There's too much story. It's very kind of episodic, but as you know if you read it, but. Um, but a short book like Stupidest Angel, they might have a lot of fun with that. It's not a very yeah. long book, and the vampire books are pretty short too. So yep. a, a lot of times, that's that's where you you lose it. Is you just don't have you have 120 pages in a movie, and a book, right. you know, you have 350, 400, you know. Now, if they came to you, I don't know if they have said this in the option. Would you get the rights to uh, write the first screenplay, or, or do you have no interest in that? I really don't want to. No, I really don't want to. I, I, um, I, there was for a while I wanted to write uh, the the vampire screenplay, but I've just come to a point where, uh, you know, when you work, when you write novels, you just do what you want, and pretty much your creative decisions are, you know, they just have to work, and you make the decision whether they're going to work or not. And I've worked a little bit in Hollywood, and there's always somebody looking over your shoulder, and they're making. Sometimes they can't think of something to say at a meeting. 
and so they just throw some stupid ass idea out, and you know, <laughs> which represents like two months work for you because they couldn't think of what to say at a meeting. And I have a yeah. real hard time. You know, I don't play well with others. You know, um, and I, you know, I've had people. Uh, I, I had an agent, a big time agent, tell me, you know, that uh, the story for Les Lizard of Melancholy Cove didn't work. I mean, she was talking to the TV network, was buying it for a series, and we were going on. And she said, I just don't think the story works. And I said, well, you know what? There's a million of them in print in 16 countries. I think the story works. <laughs> I, I love think that there's one. pretty that's good crazy. evidence that the story works and that you're a nitwit. And, <laughs> yes. and it's at that point where you tell them they're a nitwit that generally they fire you, um, <laughs> I found. So, <laughs> well, good um, for you. Good for you because yeah, it's, uh, I, I, you know, it's tough if you're just going to be a screenwriter. It's the, the lowest of the low in Hollywood. And they're the ones who matter. You know, it comes down to story. Yeah, it, it, a screener, and I have some friends who are screeners, and you just have to be a lot more willing to take input from other people. And I've just worked sort of in, in my own head for so many years that having somebody else tell me, well, that just doesn't work. And I look at them and go, of course it works. I wouldn't put it down if it didn't work. You know, <laughs> well, but, let me but, ask but, you this. Uh, you know, I did some research, and you do – work well with your editors though and you seem to uh, you know listen to what they have to say or if they have like a strange look when you present an idea so do you respect uh, you have to have a really mutual respect for each other in that capacity yeah you know what i haven't had a, a, i haven't had editors who just whimsically say stupid crap and okay the way that the, my experience with editors and i'm you know just finished 12 books so i've had some experience and with i think six different editors is that if you can defend an idea, they don't make you change it. And if you can't okay. defend an idea, you need to change it. And I've never had a confrontation with an editor that wasn't like that. It wasn't in a cooperative um, sort of, they go, oh, well, I didn't realize. and Or you say, well, heck, I didn't realize. You know, Or if you hear from two or three different people who say, well, you know what, this guy, you can't have him you know, hit the pigeon with the badminton racket because it's, it's disgusting. And you say, oh, okay, it didn't occur to me. Um, th that's the <laughs> difference. When I talk about you know, dealing with Hollywood, they always make it seem like you don't know what you're doing. Right. But the fact is there's a lot of stuff where people and – I, and I respect people who really know their stuff. I've had some interesting conversations with some really knowledgeable film people. But when you get into these development meetings sometimes, they, they're just saying stuff so that the room's not quiet. Right. And they don't realize that it doesn't, you know, it's it's like this, this is completely not necessary. So I'm not, uh, I, you know, I don't want to make it sound like I'm this prickly guy who just has to have it my own way. I'm totally willing to adapt. But I've I've had in several cases where somebody tells me to, you know, do one thing one week and on the next draft they want you to change it back. And it's like, you know, you're just jerking me around at this point. I don't have time for this. <laughs> Um, now, when you brought and, up the idea, when you brought up the idea for Lamb, did anybody come to you and say, "Well, you know, this might be a little too controversial"? No, they loved it. Um, and now, of course, I didn't, uh, I didn't, I was dealing with Hollywood. I wasn't pitching this movie. Right. But right. my editor in New York, you know, it was. I, I decided to write Lamb because I thought this is swinging for the fences. I'm either going to completely tank my career, or this will be a big book. <laughs> and um, now, go ahead. where did that come from? Where did that idea come from? Because you have you research. You took what three years to research that? Yeah, about about three years to research. But what it. was well, the part? I was reading this book called The Master and Margarita by a, a Russian author named Bulgakov. I think I never say his name right. We'll just say that's what it is. And um, <laughs> and there's a scene in it. Um, it's the trial of Jesus from the point of view of Pontius Pilate. Right. And okay. It's not what the whole book is about, but that the, that scene. And in that scene, Pilate has a migraine headache. And he just wants this obnoxious Jewish kid to go away. He doesn't want to kill him. He, does, he just doesn't want to be out in the sunshine. And he's just irritated. And, and it made it so real. And I thought, man, I've read this story a thousand different times in a thousand different ways. But because it was personalized from this, point, this character's point of view, it made it so visceral and so real. And I thought, what if you did the whole story that way? And so I create Biff, who is the the narrator, who lives in the time and is the best friends of Joshua, who is Jesus, and and sort of I, it was really my goal to make that world pop into your head and be very real and human and upfront instead of this sort of big broad brushstrokes that you get with, with the King James Bible. I mean, thirty years right. of Christ's life isn't even covered in the Bible, 
you know, and so I thought, I don't know anything about history or religion. I should write that. Um, so basically that was, that was where the idea came from, was just seeing somebody taking the, a little bit of that well-known story and making it really present, if that's for lack of a better word, um, and, seeing, and seeing if I could do it with the whole story and make it funny. You know, and, and there were uh, there's a, a theory that you know that Jesus did during that time go to the east and study with the Buddhists. Um, did you find that in your research? Not really. What what, you, what I found was that you know in studying these different um, religions, that pretty much all of them had come to the same conclusion. Now, if you right. if you go through Taoism or Buddhism or Hinduism, which you know, thank God there was no. Islam at that time, so I didn't even have to cross that bridge. Um, they, every, they had all come to the same conclusion, pretty much if you should treat people the way you want to be treated. That's the bottom line of, of virtually every religion. Probably materialism isn't going to be your best goal, and you should be kind to one another. That was it. Right. And they yeah, all reached those same conclusions, you know? Yeah, I think so, like Joseph Campbell has a whole career on that, the you know mythology. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And, 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 you know, who knows? I mean, Joseph Campbell and, and Carl Jung thought we might be hardwired for myths, for certain stories. Exactly, know? right. And um, so, so basically, I don't know whether Jesus went to the East or not, but it made a much more interesting story if he did. Mm -hmm. You know, when you get into it, a lot of them say, look, there, if you go back to the rabbinical teachings of the time, you can find most of those revolutionary things that Jesus says that are sort of paraphrase Buddha and paraphrase different things from the, uh, from the Hinduism. But right. it's much more interesting if he goes to to China and and Afghanistan and India, you know, if for no other reason than he gets to learn kung fu. So yeah. <laughs> that was you know, that was my reasoning. I was like, wouldn't it be cool if Jesus knew kung fu? Um, so so um, that that but but either way worked. It just made a better story to to send them on this journey to learn to be the Messiah. The idea that this kid was told he was going to be the Messiah, but he didn't get the instruction book. And so he has to go have the experiences that, that teach him the lessons that he will, you know, and I worked backwards from like Sermon on the Mount and different things right. that were said in the gospel so that the experiences that he and Biff have during their journey sort of add up to, oh, well, it makes perfect sense that he would say this, you know, <laughs> given his experience, you know, like he, there's a, there's a, somewhere in one of the Gospels, pardon me, it's been 10 years almost since I wrote this book, but it, there's something about if you knock, you should, the door shall be opened for you into the kingdom of heaven. And then there's a thing when they're trying to get into the Buddhist monastery and they knock and the guy won't let him in. It's like the scene from The Wizard of Oz. You know, yeah. the little door opens and they're like, go away! Um, and, and, uh, and Joshua says, you know, if when I'm in charge, if people knock, I'm going to let them in. And so later right. on when it shows up in the Gospels, it makes perfect sense that he would say that. <laughs> well, that must have been some research, though. Boy. It, it, huh. was, uh, it was hard. It was sort of, I had to have my brain on, you know, at 100% because I'm not that smart a guy. So trying to make all those connections and read all those arcane um, spiritual texts, especially um, Taoist alchemy, which is where we get feng shui from, Right. That's the, I just got to a point where, I mean, one of the characters in the book, this is too. I just went, this is. They're just making this shit up as they go along. I had <laughs> no. I. It just doesn't make any sense at all. There's no logic to it. It's like just throwing bones out, and um, and so trying to make sense of that and make it into a story was pretty tough. And and I, as I said, I have one of the characters who goes, I don't get it. I I just don't understand <laughs> chi or or any of that stuff. But uh, Buddhism and Hinduism was pretty. It was a, it was a lot of fun and interesting to research. Now, when you wrote your first book, Practical Demon Keeping, you're an unknown. Now, did you write the whole book out and then get an agent? Uh, how did how did that come about? Or did you Absolutely. just say they... yeah, I wrote the I wrote the entire book, um, and and it was finished and typed up, and then I started sending out the uh, you know I did I think eleven drafts of my first book. I don't do that anymore, but on the first one, you have a lot of time because there's nobody waiting for it. Um, and then I sent it out to agents and, and eventually got an agent. Actually, How long did it, and, how long did it, it take? It took about you? 11 months to get um, – it took me about six months to get an agent and then about 11 months before the book sold. Now, um, for anyone who wants, to, who wants to pub, become a published author, how, how would you recommend? They want to they become an author? Do you just tell them write the book and send it out to an agent? If you're a novelist, you've got to write the book first. Yeah, because okay. you have to prove that you can write the book. I mean, they don't know if you – I didn't even know I could write the book before I wrote the book. 
You know, so it's not like you go, I'm an, ex- uh, I'm an expert on marine biology and I have this great idea for a book about whales. Well, they go, well, okay, you're an expert on marine biology. That's the most important part. But if you're a novelist, it, you've got to write the book first. It's right. not a pitch thing. And, and it's very, you can always tell in uh, TV and movies, they always have these guys pitching the book um, because that's what you do in Hollywood. You don't write a word until they pay you. But in, in New York, that's not how it works, And especially for a new novelist. You've got to have a track record. You've got to have a book finished, and that's and I knew that. Um, how to do it now? Um, I still think you should write the book first, but I don't know how marketing. It's been 20 years. There wasn't even an internet when I did this, and now I know right. uh, a lot. A lot of agents take uh, submissions through email and stuff like that, which I, I, I would have no idea. I think you'd go to an agent's uh, website and and see what the uh, what do you call it? The guidelines for submission are submission. Now, you brought the Internet up. How has that changed as far as you being an author from when you started to now? How's it, I mean, you're on Facebook. You're tweeting. You know, um, how do you find time, and is, do you feel it's a necessity? I, you know, when I first started, um, I'd say the first eight or about eight years of, of my career, um, my publisher wouldn't, wouldn't uh, tour me nationally. And it was clear that I was being published nationally, but I didn't have any contact with my audience um, because I couldn't get national tours. So um, I, I started putting my email on my, I think my third book, which came out in '95, and that seems very soon. But that was, you know, the only email at the time was AOL, CompuServe, and um, right. Prodigy. You know, mm-hmm. people go, "Why do you have this AOL address?" And I'm like, "Well, there's a million <laughs> books with AOL on it. I can't really <laughs> get rid of it now." But um, so that was my way of sort of connecting with my audience that I couldn't get out there and tour to. And I answered, I still answer every single email I get, um, unless they're really creepy. And, uh, and it just was something, my way to build my audience. I had been, you know, sort of taught with the idea that art and writing was communication and communication's a two way thing. And so it was great. And, you know, and, and 99.9% of my email is, I love your books. And it's, yeah, so there are worse things than having somebody tell you they like your work. So I just sort of have kept that contact up. And then as MySpace came up, I was late on board for you know MySpace and Facebook and Twitter and all that because I had to have enough of my readers go, you've got to do this. And I'm like, I don't want to do this. And they go, you've got to do this. <laughs> um, and, and it starts to become a trade-off. I mean, I did a blog for a while, and the blog really falls down when I'm working on a book. Because right. uh, you know, my mind tells me my writing's done for the day. Well, it's not if I haven't done my pages on the book. So, so as much as I like to do it, um, it it does take energy. The Twitter stuff, not so much, because it's like I think up goofy goofy stuff that wouldn't go into the context of a book. I mean, unfortunately, when you write comedy and you're say writing like in um, say in the, my last book, which is set in like a, a you know 12th century England. Not mm-hmm. all the thing, funny stuff you come up with really fits into the context of 12th century England. So if I think up something funny about you know the governor of South Carolina or, or polar bears or something like that, I can Twitter it, and it's out of my system, but it doesn't really take any time or energy. It's just I was thinking that goofy stuff. Now you, unfortunately, have to be party to you know fun stream <laughs> of consciousness as well. I, and I, I don't have a value judgment on it uh, right now beyond I, I seem to – you know, the people who seem to interact with me on the web seem to be glad, you know, surprised, pleasantly surprised. Um, but there are times when I have to pull away from it and, and really submerge myself into a book. And, you know, it's just a, it, nothing's ever constant. There's nothing ever, um, you know, I always think, oh, there'll be a routine, and, and for this many minutes a day I'll do this. Well, I've been doing this 20 years, and it's never gotten to that. It's always <laughs> just a complete... You know, running around, putting out fires and patching leaks. There's, and that's my entire life, and I've just come to the point where I accept that that's always what it's going to be. You know, it's always going to be a sort of this, this unorganized fire drill. And, uh, and this, the idea of somehow I'm this organized person who keeps a, you know, one of those uh, Philofax type of diaries that says, yes, and from 9 to 12, I'll be working on the book, and from 12 to 12.15, I will answer my Twitters. It's like, no, that's not how it works. <laughs> I have to do this until I get freaked out about not doing that other thing and then run over and go do that. Now, um, oh, I lost my train of thought right there. Um, that's all right. I've rambled on for a while. But... So how do you feel about anyone who listens to your audiobooks? I mean, they're buying it, so I'm sure you're happy, but how do you feel about audiobooks? 
I think in some cases they're really a great thing. Um, I, I know that this book I just uh, that just came out in April Fool, um, which is the, the telling of King Lear from the point of view of the fool. It's in the voice of of, of a Brit, I mean, and I don't have the voice of a Brit. So right. so and and for Americans sometimes I think it's hard to try that on and and you know I really worked to get that idiom right the way that that more modern Brits talk but there's a little bit of Elizabethan in there and the actor Ewan Morton who read it is extraordinary I mean he not only knows how to do Elizabethan and Shakespearean and 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 so forth but he can when the character is from you know northern England, he does the Northern England accent, and when from mm-hmm. from Wales, he does the Welsh accent. I would never know to do that. So it's a completely sort of enriching experience to the book, in that he he does all these different accents and characters, and he knows the timing that um, British comedy has. So so uh, and and the same thing with Susan Bennett, who read who reads my vampire books. Those are mostly from the point of view of a, of a woman. Right, and so you really hear a woman reading it. Um, so I, I don't have a problem with it. I, um, I, I the, the numbers on audiobooks are phenomenally small compared to the number of people who read my books. But, uh, but if the performance is good, I think it's it's a great uh, sort of addition to it. You know. Now on Facebook, someone also posted that they read your book, but they read it in Spanish and they loved it. Now, was there? Do you ever think like, will my comedy and my writing translate? Is that ever a fear? Yeah, yeah, and that does that does worry me. Um, and in fact, I I wonder. Um, I did a German book tour last year, and the Germans are they speak such good English. Almost everyone I met that they can tell you they're and I you know I had audiences say we get about eighty percent. You know, they, <laughs> you know people who you know well the people who have read the books both in English and in, in right. German, and they say well you know about eighty percent of the humor translates and. Um, and we were talking. We were doing a scene, and uh, it was a really interesting. I, they the, when you do a book tour in Germany, they hire an actor, and he goes around and he reads a scene in German, and then you read a scene, you know, connected to that in English. Mm-hmm. And wow. I would follow along, and people laughed at the right places in in German. I I speak a teeny tiny bit of German, so I could at least follow it. And then, um, but at, at one point, uh, one of the characters says "poop." And in in the American version, and they have you know the word shisa, which yeah. is not yeah, which is harsher than that. But they don't <laughs> have the kind of little kid word. And I kept saying, okay, so you guys don't have this, and they go, no, it's shisa. There's no polite word for it. You know what I'm saying? And there's no word that you would use with a little kid. And I realized that that's just because it's an American or perhaps just a uh, an English thing. And you're going to lose the subtlety of it. I think the French translations of my book books are much harsher they they have they seem much more biting than i actually am i think the humor in my books is usually pretty gentle but whoever's translating them is making it seem much harsher (laughs) because the letters i get from france they're real caustic and real you probably think that this is that you know they're just they want to be on my side you know but they they want to be in up in somebody's face um and and so clearly the way it's being phrased in translation and i don't speak enough of any language to be able to check up on it but basically i think i think the best in, uh the best indication is how many sell and i'm you know mm-hmm. i'm like a bestseller in germany i i i you know couldn't buy a sandwich for what i get in my books in france so um, it's it's really uh, it does bother me. I, I worry about it. I, the one place I worry about most is England. I'm like, okay, how come these aren't working that well in England? Because well, we I, I read that they put it in their language. I'm sorry. <laughs> I read also they put your books in England in the sci-fi fantasy section. That's true. They do. Yeah, they're, I'm in with the elves and unicorns in in, in England. Yeah. So they're probably pissed off again. There's no uh, unicorn. You know, they want a little fairy run. I, I don't. I really don't know what it is. I think that. I mean, they the the English publisher certainly had a. They had a reason to do that. Uh, I mean, Douglas Adams and Terry Pratchett are both shelved in science yes. fiction, and mm-hmm. uh, and Terry Pratchett's the best selling author in England of any genre. So, so I couldn't go to them and say, look, you can't put me in science fiction. But but, somehow I think that is hurting the books. The reason they've done well in the U.S. is. They go to the front of the store where everybody can read them, and and I think that they're much better. If you if you don't read a lot of supernatural horror and you pick up one of my vampire books, it, it's accessible. You'll like it, even though you you're not a vampire guy. 
whereas the stuff that you go back into the horror section and read, you probably need to be a horror person to like. And uh, and it, I and I think it's just a matter of the, how I write characters. It's not a good or better thing. It's just uh, it's just a thing. You know? What I love about your books, outside of just being funny, it's it's the characters and the comedy comes directly from the characters. Like Charlie Asher in A Dirty Job, he re- reminds me a lot of myself because you know I have a son and when he was born I was. Uh, I'm laughing at the book because I was counting the fingers, counting the toes. And really, when the right. baby's being born, it looks like something out of Alien. It's, there's nothing. <laughs> it's a frightening thing. when you, She's like, that doesn't look human at all. Like, what happened? Was she slept with an alien or something? You know, and I, I just was, are, do these thoughts of, like, pop in your head normally? Or is this something that you do? Well, yeah, yeah. I think that, I think that that's, that's part of what it is, is the reason that it works is that people read it and go, like, I write a lot in that book about the beta male. And it's basically yes. my theory that, that the beta male is, you know, the alpha male we all know is the big, strong guy who beat up all the mastodons, and that's how he got all the girls. But somehow, you know, most guys aren't like that. And the beta male got the girls by going, you know what? When all those guys run after the mastodon and go over the cliff, I think if I look far enough into the future, that's not going to be a good thing to do. I think I'll sit back here and comfort the widows. And that's the beta male. He's the guy that survived not because he had the biggest biceps, but because he had the, the most developed imagination, which, and as you know in the book, sort of turns back on him because it also <laughs> makes you a little paranoid. Um, <laughs> yeah, like I'm completely paranoid. Yeah, I'm like the beta male, and, yeah. and when when you mentioned that the beta male also, you know, his biggest fault is he thinks he's the alpha male, and I'm like, wait a minute, that is me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the first thing that happens is when you, you know, it's really funny because I when I'll go do an event, um, you know, we'll have a couple hundred people, and there'll be you know 50 women will come up and go, my husband's a beta male, and he'll be looking <laughs> at her like she's speaking Chinese. But, uh, no, I am not, and you're like, uh, yeah, you are. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but that you know, that's just, and I certainly am. I'm a complete beta male. I make my living with my imagination. How could I deny that I'm a beta male? But, <laughs> but that was, I, I think, the you know, the sort of the idea that you make characters that people can sympathize with and they can be on their same side. I had a great teacher, um, a guy named Shelley Lowenkopf, who who teaches at USC, and I didn't have him at USC. I had I took seminars from him, and. Um, and he was always hitting with, you know, you've got to, everything comes from character, and and so I really owe, you know, a lot of the success of my career to to approaching these characters, with uh, with the idea that I know what, you know, you have to know what they want, you have to know what they're willing to do to get it, and making that uh, identifiable for people who are reading it. And and I got to say, I hate shows or books where I don't identify with any of the characters. I I remember stop I stopped watching The Sopranos in like the fourth season because I went, right. so which sociopathic killer am I rooting for? <laughs> you know, um, and I just, I just couldn't, you know, or if, or if all the characters on a, on a show become whiners, I won't watch it anymore. It's like, I, I don't like any of you people. I, I lost. It was like, screw all you people. I hate all of you. Um, I'm glad. Oh, you yeah. Lost. I hope you stay yeah. lost. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Somebody had said that they hope that they hope the ending of lost is that they finally get back on the plane and they're about to go to LA and it crashes. <laughs> you know, like just <laughs> crashes into LAX. <laughs> just because at this point, I can't stand any of them on the show either. When it first started, you sort of identified, but then it just got to a point where, oh, shut yeah, up. Yeah, well, I, there's there's other things beyond there's things beyond character on that. There's there, there's a lot of, I think people. I I very early on would turn to my wife like girlfriend and go, these guys have no idea what's going to happen next. And, you know, because I do this for a living, I know, you know, I know right, that if right. I plot something, and I'm like, these guys are are totally making this stuff up as they go along. Well, and they claim they, they're not, but, you know. <laughs> I, 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 they claim they're not, but that whole, <laughs> let's open the hatch, let's open the hatch, what will happen if we open the hatch? And then they open the hatch, and there's four episodes of, gosh, wasn't it great before the hatch was open? And yeah. I'm like, come on. Um, <laughs> That's when I stopped watching it. But I, I mean, I, I don't want to. I don't want to just sit here and slam Lost. But it's there were there were things beyond the characters. There actually were some fairly likable characters on that, but they were overshadowed by by the sort of convoluted way of storytelling that that J.J. Uh, Abrams set up. That you know, and I liked his uh, his uh, show Alias a lot. Alias, yeah. But uh, now that, it's yeah. interesting though because it seems so simple that it comes from character, but Hollywood is so lost on this because how you're saying you've got to relate. I mean, it seems to me they, this, well, we can make robots transform. Let's make a movie about it. And in what world is Shia LaBeouf going to hang out with Megan Fox? I don't I can't relate to that. 
Well, you got to make it hope. You know, you have to make it. You know, you have to all be hopeful. You know, um, <laughs> what is it? There's a, I think there's a line in uh, in Dirty Job where he says, you know, occasionally. Um, Sling Blade gets to marry uh, Laura yes. Croft, and occasionally <laughs> Tinkerbell marries a racer head. Um, but that's just not the way to bat. And and so you know the guy, people like you know Billy Bob Thornton marrying Angelina Jolie. You go, God, yeah, there's hope. Or uh, you know that when, was Julia uh, Roberts when, with uh, Julia uh, Roberts. Lyle, Lyle uh, Levitt. <laughs> yeah, uh, extraordinarily. Uh, talented guy but oh come on um so i mean but i'm not criticizing him i'm like you know good for us um, yeah you think there's hope but then again yeah you know, our team did good celebrity. um but i i yeah so that, i think that's why you get the the megan fox shia labeouf thing and also if you're being attacked by by you know giant robots it's any port in a storm isn't it I mean, that's, <laughs> that's the nice force like, to go in. You know, Shia, Shia LaBeouf might, you know, have all the check boxes, but he happens to be there. Um, <laughs> so, uh, oh, I so hope yeah, ro- robots I, I attack. And I, I'm sorry? I said I so hope robots attack and Megan Fox is in town. There you go. Yeah, you know what? You want to be behind her in line when the robots yeah. attack. But, I, yeah, I so, think what's more, I don't think that they don't get it. I, th- I don't think that that... You know, Shia LaBeouf is people like him, and he and he works as a sympathetic character. Right now, they're casting him in everything, but I think yeah. that they've got they've gotten it for a long time in sitcoms. Every you know, they know that sitcoms are character based. You're not tuning in, you know, for the story arc. You know, like a novel, you're tuning in every week because you like, you know, right. Sam and Diane or or you know whoever you happen to be you know addicted to. You know. And uh, and and so Hollywood knows that they're not they're not uh, immune to that. I think comedies tend to be more character driven. In um, but but think, you know when if you're doing giant robots, it's freaking giant robots. Um, <laughs> it, it's, it, you, know, <laughs> you just want stuff to get blown up. Um, and and that's what Michael Bay does. If you want to blow that's some what stuff he does. up, yeah, you hire it, Michael Bay. Yeah, yeah. It's well, like, that, look at, there's some amazing cast in the movie Pearl Harbor. Totally unknown. Uh, you know, because, <laughs> like, yeah, but why did I need Kate Beckinsale to blow stuff up? Um, <laughs> well, you know, you also said that. Uh, yeah, she's great doing it. Uh, you, you said characters are defined by their desires and their fears and what gets them out of bed, what, them, you know, what makes them stay in bed. Personally, what is it that keeps you in bed? Like, what do you not want to get out of bed for? Oh man, I'm I'm I very much um, life in general, basically. <laughs> <laughs> um, pretty much anything after breakfast is just abhorrent to me. Um, I'm good for bre- breakfast. Is the only thing. The reason, if it weren't for coffee, I would have gone to bed in 1995 and not gotten out <laughs> ever again. But it's like, well, if I wake up, I can have coffee. Well, let's hope um, a doctor never tells you you can't have coffee anymore. Yeah, well, you know what? That's just the point where I go, okay, I quit drinking years ago. I quit smoking. Screw you. I'm just going to die now. I just, you know, <laughs> I had a, I had a Twitter post yesterday. They're going to, they're talking about banning uh, uh, Vicodin and Percocet. You know, the FDA is going to ban. And right. I'm like, that's it. That's it. If they ban <laughs> Nookie or chocolate, I'm moving to France. Uh, I feel the same way. <laughs> I feel the same way about. Not having coffee, it's like the day they tell me I can't have caffeine, that's it, I'm done. Um, but uh, I, what the hell were we talking about? I don't remember. Well, just what, what your fear is, I guess your fear. Oh, the fear, I, would, I, I have a hard time with meetings. I really don't like, uh, and fortunately I don't, because of what I do, I don't have to do too many meetings. But I really, I don't mind doing public speaking, I don't mind speeches, I, I'm, but I don't like doing meetings. They seem like a huge waste of time. and. I'm like this kid with Tourette's at a meeting. I am. If someone's going to get called a fucking idiot, I'm the guy that's going to call them that. And and I and I, and I know that I have a, a way too much of a hair trigger um, on that sort of thing. And you know, and I, you know, it. I, and I keep telling people, you don't want to have a meeting with me. You don't want to have. Well, if we have a meeting, it's like. And you, and, you know, I try to put like if if it's Hollywood, I'll like. Well, you have to fly me down, and you have to. You know, send a limo over. <laughs> I try to put, you know, I'm almost to the point of, and they can only be blue M&Ms. Anything. Yeah, I was just going to say that. Go to the meeting. Yeah. Um, 
but yeah, you just you realize that's why people become these these divas is because they just don't want to take a meeting, and you know, they, so they put all these conditions in front of it. It's like it has to be organic celery. Um, but uh, <laughs> yeah. but I that's what I dread. I dread going, you know, doing meetings, and sometimes I, I have a real hard time like doing social things that you know. Like they're, they'll be doing some literary thing with all these famous authors in town, and it's like I don't want to meet famous authors. They'll expect me to be smart and stuff. Uh, <laughs> I don't want to be smart. I want to stay, stay home and, you know, watch Terminator. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great movie. So, if you didn't like that, when you had to go on your tours, eventually, mm-hmm. when they decided we're going to do tours, was that frightening for you? And did you have like you brought up creepy emails? Did you ever have any creepy fans? Like in person? No, you know what? The thing that's really cool about writing funny books is that people are sort of predisposed to be nice. They come in, they're in a good mood, they expect you're going to make them laugh, and they're and they're pretty happy, and they're not. You know, I, I know some other authors who write stuff that's quite a bit darker than I am, and they get some mm-hmm. really creepy people at their at their events. But I get I occasionally get some drunk people. Um, <laughs> they must be fun. <laughs> Yeah, this last tour I had a couple of drunk hecklers, and I realized I don't have a heckler strategy like comedians because <laughs> I haven't had to deal with that before. So I had to, I, I, I talked to a couple of friends who are comedians. I go, you got to help me get my heckler stick down because I don't have it yet. I didn't expect I'd need it. But uh, but no, people are really cool. The creepy emails are usually somebody that's just resonated with one of the characters, you know. And they and you got to remember you're sort of sitting in their living room with them or their bedroom with them, and they spend you know eight ten hours in your mind, right? So they feel like they know you pretty well. So so it's again very very rarely, but you'll get I'll get an email that the uh, the heading is soulmates, you know, and I'm like okay this is going to be weird, um, <laughs> and they just have, they've just uh, connected a little bit more than they they should. With, you, with, yeah. Let me give you some advice if, if you're going to uh, try to get heckler training, don't go to Michael Richards, you know Kramer from Seinfeld. <laughs> Well, I, I just I had this happen in Seattle this a uh, couple months ago, and and these people were just I couldn't get past one sentence because they thought it was a dialogue. You know, they kept answering rhetorical questions, and I, I you know, I'm I'm not a horrible public speaker, but I need, you know, clearly from this interview, I have trouble keeping a train of thought. So if I'm interrupted every sentence, then it becomes a real staccato sort of horrible you know thing to watch so i i ended up just sort of turning and screaming for them to shut up and that's, <laughs> that's not, good that's that's not good for them and it's not good for me you know and nobody looks good <laughs> in that so i stood i stood there for about five minutes and, and i tried to reassess i go i cannot yell at these people that's not going to you know endear, endear me to this other 200 people in the audience so um <laughs> i like i really like you know c- connecting with people on tour because when you write funny books, you tell a joke, and then 18 months later, you find out whether anybody ever laughed at it. But if you're out <laughs> talking to your readers, you know you know right away if you're if you're doing well or if you're bombing. And and so, like I said, and and most people are pretty kindly disposed to you because you've made them laugh, you know, either in their home or in their car or you know on the bus next to somebody. So um, so it's it's really a more pleasant experience. The travel is the only thing that's difficult about book tour. Now, who are you reading now? Um, well, you know, right now I'm reading a lot of research stuff, so I'm I'm not really reading anything fun. Are you um, researching a new book? Yeah, I'm researching a new book. I'm going to be writing about um, Paris in the 1880s, and uh, so I'm write, reading a lot about um, you know the impressionist painters and architecture of the time and history of the time and composers of the time. So it's really sort of boring stuff to talk about, you know. But it's uh, that's what I'm I'm learning about now because that's what I'm going to write about. Um, let me think. The last book for pleasure I read. I read a novel uh, by Joe Lansdale who writes uh, sort of hillbilly gothic um, and it was called Vanilla Ride. It's his latest mystery with his series of Leonard and Hap, which are ex-cons who work sort of freelance troublemakers out of out of South Texas. Um, and they're, they're fast moving and fun. They're sort of like Louis L'Amour with a lot more foul language in it. Um, and uh, uh, thinking about it's really tough i i don't get to read for pleasure much anymore because i've either got something i'm reading for comment yeah. for a publisher or i'm reading for research so so i very seldom really get to relax with a novel that i'm that i enjoy you um, had just you had just finished writing the the third 
vampire novel, and you're starting research. When is the when will you start writing this Paris book? I am. I will probably start writing this book in realistically probably November. I'm. Wow. Uh, I, yeah. I'm literally. I, I haven't even sent in the final draft to bite me. But you know, it's, I do this for a living. It's my job. I can't. <laughs> uh, you know. So and and research when you do a big book like like the one I just I, I did last year. Um, Fool, which was had a lot of English history and a lot of Shakespeare in it. Or yeah, I, I read like that you said that 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 was one of the toughest um, ones to research and that yeah. you've ever done. Yeah, it was just a, a huge volume of material to to familiarize myself with. And like anything in research, you know, you throw ninety percent out, and maybe even more than that. But you got to know it just to sort of so you so you go to the page with confidence that you can write. I tend to do research like take everything in and then go offhand as if you just know it off the top of your head. And that means that you learn a lot of stuff so that you can use that. It's less than trying to find out just those few things that I need to know. Because I can always, you know, Google something if I need to know, you know, how well, how big is a 747 or something like that. So that's not the kind of thing that I research. I, you know, you have to get into a mindset. With Fool, it was I had to read enough Shakespeare so I could think in Shakespeare. Yeah. Um, and then translate it into into something yeah. the average yeah. reader And Lamb, I had to know enough about that world so I could make you see that world. Um, and right. so this this book is more is that is that with the art world. It's like I'm learning how to paint with oils and, and watercolor and stuff because that's what those guys did. And are you ever I'm tempted gonna, to just say are you ever tempted to just say I'm gonna be lazy and take a, a lot of time off and go sit in Hawaii for a while? Um I I get enough time off when I get stuck, you know, <laughs> and I get enough, you know, I really do. I mean, I don't take, when I'm working on a book, I work seven days a week, but I don't really usually get seven days a weekend because, you know, like on Thursday I'll go, I have no friggin' idea what I'm going to do today, and I'll sit there and stew about it. So I don't enjoy my time off, but I get it I was going to say, that doesn't um, sound like a vacation. But, uh, I, I don't, you know, it, I don't mind, I really like my job. I mean, if somebody goes, yeah, well, you what should. are you going to do in your time off? I mean, basically I've been, you know, painting cookie monsters and stuff to research that's what i'd be doing you know instead of golf if i was if you know i wrote a book about uh whale marine mammal biologists and uh <laughs> you know i spent all this time ocean kayaking in hawaii and scuba diving with with national geographic people and i'm i don't need a vacation after that that's the coolest <laughs> thing in the world you know that is pretty awesome. Dirty little, yeah. I'm about to go live two months in Paris, eating baguettes and brie. How bad is that? You know, <laughs> that is awesome. Yeah, don't you need a vacation? Um, <laughs> so no, I, I, I really, I'm a writer when I wake up in the morning, and I'm a writer when I'm not, and uh, I, when I, well, when I don't, I guess I'm a corpse. But, um, <laughs> uh, but I mean, it's, it, it's a 24/7 thing, and it, and it doesn't. I after I finish a book, it's just nice to not be writing for you know a month or two because I generally get behind and I end up pushing too hard at the end and um or after I do a big tour it's kind of nice to not have to talk to anybody for a while but it's it's very uh there's a lot of different aspects to this job you know whether some of it's very public and you're very you know on and then there's a lot of it that's very reclusive and I don't see anybody but my girlfriend for months at a time you know so it's there's variety and there's it's certainly I, I don't work too hard. It's you know I think the rest of my work day is, is literally I'm going to go paint something red because I don't I need to know what that feels like. So good for you. You know at the end of uh, Inside the Actor Studio they always ask ten questions and I've never done this but I thought it'd be fun with you. So let's sure. let's do those ten questions. The first one. Sure. What what is your favorite word? Fuck stockings. What <laughs> cock stockings? Fuck stockings. It's a new oh, one. I fuck. made it up. <laughs> I like it. It's from Fool. Not... Yeah, it, it's the archaic. It's the archaic version of fuck socks. <laughs> What's your least favorite word? Uh, guilt. 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 What turns you on? I like knockers. <laughs> I, oh, I mean art. Did I, did I say knockers? I meant art. Art would not. <laughs> art knockers art. Oh, uh, sure. So, okay, what turns you off? Uh, 
closed-mindedness. Okay. What sound do you love? Laughter. And what sound do you hate? Jackhammer. <laughs> I hate the jackhammer, too. Uh, I've been trying. This guy, they're, they're digging a garage next door to me, so I, the jackhammer one I didn't even have to think about. What's your favorite curse word? Fuck, fuck. <laughs> oh, I have so many. Uh, I uh, Sure, yeah. I'll, I don't ever say, I don't ever blurt out fuck stockings, but I like writing it. <laughs> it sounds great, though. Yeah. You know, in, in print it looks great, but it sounds better. I think I'm going to start using that in my everyday life. Yeah, you have to work it in. <laughs> There's a lot of <laughs> syllables there. <laughs> All right, what profession other than yours would you like to attempt? Um, I wouldn't mind trying to do stand-up. I don't think that I'd, I don't know if I'd be good enough to do it, but I, I, I like making people laugh a lot, so doing something else that would make people laugh would be fun. What profession would you not like to do? Um, I don't think I'd like to be a cop. I mean, my father was a cop, and I, I actually tested to be a cop at one point, but I just, I just don't think I'd like to see that aspect of humanity every day. Yeah, that would be frightening. It depends. I guess if you get a nice little town, but then again, well, yeah, that's it. Well, it's 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 not so much it's frightening. It's just that you you can not always, but you can start to get a really jaded view of humanity because you tend to see the worst elements of it. Yeah. And um and I've known a number of cops that did that. My dad was a highway patrolman, so he said he perceived his job as always being helping people. But uh, but city cops, uh, I know a few here in San Francisco, and they they are pretty cynical. And I don't know that I would blame them. If I had to deal with gangbangers and stuff every day, I, I probably would be pretty cynical, too. And that wouldn't be fun. So. All right. The final question for the evening. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Nice job. <laughs> Very good. All right. All right well, thanks, thanks uh, for calling in and giving me your time, and it was great. And uh, th I'm going to air this Monday night, so I'll Facebook friend you, and then I'll put it up letting your fans know as well awesome all right thanks all a right lot. thanks Please. take care bye all right